Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24 and we're going to call this one Hiding and Hoping in God. Hiding and Hoping in God. And explain more of what I mean by that as we go. So let me pray for us. Father God, I pray for these next few minutes together that you would draw near to us as we seek to draw near to you through the Word, through prayer, Lord, through listening, through thinking, through uh, meditating, through remembering, through applying. Uh, I pray there would be sanctification in the moment as we encounter you, Holy Spirit, through the written word, uh, make it experientially for us, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing, dividing, judging the thoughts, the intentions of our hearts, our motives. Lord, expose us to ourselves that we might repent, that we might rejoice in you, and we might grow up and be made into the men and the leaders, uh, the ministers that you want us to be. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. We're going to start in 1 Samuel 24. Remember, David at this point has run away. Um, He escaped Saul's henchmen. Once he actually tried to run to the Philistines. He got so desperate, but that didn't work. They were going to arrest him, so he acted like a crazy man. He got out of there. And now we're going to pick up with the story pretty soon after that. 1 Samuel chapter 24. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. Just pause here for a second. Uh, We don't have any record anywhere that God had ever spoken this to David. You You could say, well, maybe he did, and it's just not recorded in the Bible. But this doesn't seem like something that was actually ever said by God. So it seems more something maybe that his men kind of assumed or they made up and they're trying to kind of say, well, you know, technically this is what God wants, so you should go ahead and do it, David. But uh, part of what we need to learn from this is you need to be careful, even from well-meaning friends, well-meaning advisors sometimes, which the Bible has a lot to say, especially in Proverbs, about having people around you that give you good counsel. That's very important. But... The Bible always has to be our plumb line. The Bible always has to be our guardrails. And so when we get advice from somebody, we need to check it out with the Word of God. And if it doesn't line up with our understanding of the Word of God, obviously we don't need to listen to it. We need to throw it out. Okay, so let's keep going. Verse 5, it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words, and he did not allow them to rise up against Saul. I know we've looked at this before, but this is going to be the really specific setting of a psalm we're going to look at today. And Saul arose and left the cave and went on his way. Now afterward, David arose, and he went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? So he's trying to reason with Saul. Okay, don't listen to your false counselors. I'm not listening to my false counselors. You shouldn't either, Saul. 
Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand, and some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and perceive there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. And I'm not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me on you, and my hand shall not be against you. Now just pause for a second on verse 12. Remember what we looked at last week, the idea of David praying against his enemies. David's honest about that. He's saying, listen, I, I, I am asking God to come down and judge. I am asking God to come down and vindicate me. I am asking God to uh, avenge me against you, but I'm not going to take it in my own hands. I'm waiting on God's timing. As, verse 13, as the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a single flea. Now, everybody flip over to Psalm chapter 57, which was written during this time. Psalm chapter 57. You can look at the title there, and it tells us this was written when he's hiding in the cave. And we're going to kind of go deep in this, okay? And the first point that we're going to look at today from Psalm 57 is the idea of hiding in God. Okay, hide in God. And just... Again, try to put yourself in David's shoes. He's been anointed to be king, but right now he's been put in a position where he's supposed to serve this demon-possessed king. And he tried his best. It didn't work out. So now he's running away. He's trying to hide. He's trying to hang on to his righteousness by not taking matters in his own hand. But Saul's pursuing him. I mean, Saul's doing everything he can, in a sense, force a conflict and try to kill him. So look at how we, we saw how David responded. In the moment, when we saw David's actions, but here's what I want us to think about this morning. What was going on internally? I mean, think about how scared David must be. Think about how desperate he must feel. And he's got all his men saying, this is what God wants you to do. And they're almost like, hey, we heard a, prophet, a prophetic voice, even if you didn't. And God said there was going to be a day where you get to kill your enemy. And look at the circumstances. I mean, the one cave up here that we decide to hide in, it just happens to be the one cave that Saul decides to go into and take off his clothes and have to go to the bathroom. I mean, it doesn't get more obvious than this. God has, in a sense, served up Saul to you on a silver platter. Go chop his head off, David. It's obvious. David stays humble. David stays holy. David is able to use his words to push back his men. We're not going to do this. Not only am I not going to kill him, you're not going to kill him. He's still a leader. He leads for it. What is it internally going on in David that enables him to do this? And the first point is, really, he's hiding in God. Okay, Look at the first few verses here, Psalm 57. Verse 1, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. So what he's saying is, in some sense, God, yes, I'm hiding in this cave, but I'm not trusting in this cave. I'm really hiding in you. I mean, this is a great picture of, uh, you know, Psalm 127, unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. It doesn't say put down your hammer and quit building the house. Keep building the house. But all the time that you're putting your time and effort and energy into building that house, you realize every time I swing this hammer, the hammer's not going to work if God doesn't bless the hammer. I'm doing the outward external work, but God's doing the secret inward work. And listen, guys, that may not be as obvious in carpentry, but it certainly ought to be obvious to us in ministry, right? 
Because I bet we've all had experiences where you're trying to share the gospel with somebody and you feel like you're bringing out the best illustrations, you're using the best verses, you're drawing the best diagrams, you're sharing your testimony, you're pouring out your heart, maybe you're even crying talking about how Christ has changed your life, and you're talking to somebody and they're just deadpan, just stone-faced, nothing. Or maybe you've had times where they're really reacting and they're, they're crying and they're getting all emotional. They're like, yes, I believe you, i got to do this, and yet no change happens. We can't predict or determine where the wind of the Spirit blows. But our job is to go out, do our best in ministry, and then beg God, have mercy on me, bless the work of my hands, and hope that He actually does blow and change somebody's heart. So here's kind of the theme for the whole day. In all of life, and certainly in ministry, we are supposed to be as faithful as we can. Do everything legitimately that you can to move the purposes forward that you think God wants you to steward. But then, at the end of the day, you don't trust in any of your efforts. I can't remember if I've quoted this in here or not yet, but I love this quote, and I can't remember who said it. It was this old Puritan. He said, it's very hard to perform all righteousness and yet trust in none. Do you understand what he means by that, right? As a Christian, we're supposed to be radically serious about personal practical holiness. But then we're not supposed to hope in our own holiness at all, right? We're supposed to hope in the holiness of Christ in our place. And we tend to fall into one ditch on either side of the road. We say, well, I'm not hoping in my own holiness, so why should I even do holiness? Right now you're a lawless person. That's not a good way to live. Or we go in the other ditch where it's like I'm working my tail off for holiness, and oh yeah, I'm hoping in my holiness. And then you're a legalist. That's not good either. I've got to work hard as unto the Lord, but then I don't trust in my own works. Practically, how do we see that here? David is being smart. He's hiding. He runs away. He gets in a cave. But then when he's praying, he's like, Lord, this cave is not going to protect me. Obviously, Saul accidentally came in the cave to go to the bathroom. The only thing that's really going to protect me is you, God. And that's got to be the same way we think about ministry. God, I'm going to go out. I'm going to do my best to lead this Bible study, to speak at this campus meeting, whatever it may be, to plan this event, to come up with the best promotional recruitment items I can think of to get people to come to New Year's conference. But Lord, if you don't bless the work of my hands, it'll all be for naught. It'll all be wasted. Look at verse 2. I will cry to God most high. To God who accomplishes all things for me. I mean, that second phrase of verse 2, I love that phrase. God who accomplishes all things for me. David's like, I know that you have good purposes for me. And so instead of looking to myself, instead of looking to my men, instead of looking to sinful methods, I look to you, I cry out to you. I'm confident in your character. I'm confident in your promises. I wasn't seeking to be king. But you came and you chose me, you anointed me, and now I'm trusting you to carry it out. I'm not going to try to force it. I'm sure most of us don't spend much of our free time reading Shakespeare. I don't either. But, you know, the story of Macbeth, he gets a prophecy that he's going to be king one day. And he does end up taking matters into his own hand to kind of force the issue. But early on, before he does that, there's a place where he says, if chance, he didn't necessarily believe in the one true God, so he believed fortune or chance had anointed him, so to speak, to be king. He said, if chance will have me king, then chance will crown me without my stir. You understand what he's saying there? He's saying, if, if fortune has decided I'll be king, then fortune will make me king and I don't have to work for it. Now, the problem is Macbeth didn't stick with that plan. He gets into a lot of trouble. But David did stick to that plan. And why? Because he wasn't just hoping in blind fate and chance. He was hoping in Yahweh a personal God, a loving God who had chosen him, who had made him promises. And so even when it seemed like 
all the circumstances of his life were screaming at him, this is not going to work, David. You're going to end up dead and buried in some grave out in the wilderness. He said, and I'm not going to trust what circumstances seem to be saying. I'm not even going to trust what my men seem to be saying when supposedly they're quoting scripture they've made up. I'm going to quote God because God planned these purposes. God will accomplish these purposes. Now, our situation is at least different from David in at least one way. Most of us would say, well, here I am. I'm in my 20s, my 30s, my 40s. I, I don't know what God's purposes are for me. I mean, I, I know generally, right? Love God, love people. Know God, make him known. I mean, but in a specific way, I don't have something specific like God told me I was going to be king of Israel. Uh, if, if you do have something specific like that, stay on the call afterwards. I'd like to hear about it, okay? But in some sense, guys, the answer is the same. It takes faith. Whether I know what God's plan is, whether I know what God's purposes are, or I don't know what God's plan and purposes are, the issue is not trusting the plan. The issue is not trusting the purpose. The issue is trusting the character of God, that he has the best purpose for you, even if he hasn't told you yet, and that he's going to accomplish it in the best way, in the best timing. Okay, That obviously doesn't mean that we're passive. Again, we're supposed to do everything we can do legitimately to move towards God's purposes as much as we understand them, even if we only understand them in a very broad, generic way. But our hope, our faith, our confidence is not in our efforts. It's in what God is going to do. Verse 3, He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. So he's saying, God's sitting on a throne in heaven. He's going to use all his power to help me. Okay? His covenant love, okay? his truth, he is going to take care of me. And if that means Saul's got to get killed, God will handle that. God will rebuke Saul. God will rebuke my enemies. Okay? So first point, hide in God. The second point, hope in God, which is really just another way to say the same thing. But look at verse 4. Hope in God. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue is a sharp sword. Now, here's the interesting thing. I'm not sure in verse, verse 4 if he's thinking about Saul and Saul's henchmen who are trying to kill him, or he's talking about his own friends that are trying to force him into sin. Or maybe he's talking about both of them. Uh, you know, I don't remember what song it was. I think it maybe was Steely Dan had this song, you know, Jokers to the Left, Jokers to the Right. And, and David is kind of like, man, I got enemies on my left, enemies on my right. Right? With friends like these, who needs enemies? Even my friends are trying to force me into sin. I, I'm surrounded by people that use their words in sinful ways to attack, to lie, to cut up. Now look at verse 5. Verse 5 almost seems out of place at first. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. Now, a couple things going on here. It's like this middle part of the psalm. He's, he's worried. He's fearful. He's pouring out his prayers. God, people are trying to kill me. People are digging pits. People are lying to me. People are lying about me. I'm overwhelmed. And then in the middle of that, he stops. He gets his eyes off of himself. He gets his eyes on the God. Off of his circumstances, he starts to remember God is good. God is strong. God has a plan. Ultimately, his plan is about his own glory. And guys, this is one of the things we need to remember. You know, and John Piper kind of made this whole thing famous with some of his preaching and teaching over the last 10 or 20 years that God's commitment to his glory 
is the exact same commitment to our joy and holiness. Because the more joy that we have in God, the more holiness that we have by God's sanctification, it actually, in a sense, shows off and displays God's glory even more. I mean, that ought to give us a radical degree of confidence. I mean, God is not committed to anything more than he's committed to his own glory. And the way he wants to manifest his glory, make it obvious, is through the joy and the holiness of his people. So, again, it probably won't be on our timetable, but I can have confidence. God is just as committed to my spiritual joy, my holiness, as he is to his own glory. And there ought to be rest. And so that's why David, in the midst of these lions, as he says, I mean, this is kind of like Daniel in the lion's den. He doesn't look around at the circumstances. He looks at the one true God. Let me give you a practical example. We had something very recently happen with one of our children. Something kind of happened to him. It was hard. It was hurtful. And, you know, my wife is a great mom, and so she's, she's a mama bear. And so this first happened, she's very upset. She's, you know, she's a mix of mad, sad, confused, angry. And, uh, and listen, in the grand scheme of things, it was nothing, right? It was first world problems. But for a mama's heart to her little boy, it was hard. And she didn't hardly sleep that night. You know, she's, she's, she's eating up with it in some sense. And the next day, she and I were talking. I'm like, how you doing, babe? And she said, I'm doing good. I'm doing much better. And as I kind of talked to her, part of it was she said, I just had to keep telling myself, God has a good plan. God has the best plan. God has the right plan for us. I don't know exactly what it is. This is not what I expected. But God's doing something good and right, and I've just got to trust him. Now, I could have said that to her the night before. And just as a little side note for any of you guys that are married, uh, just telling your wife the truth is not always the smartest thing to do in the heat of the moment. Sometimes it's better just to smile and say, I'm sorry, I love you, I know this is hard, I'll pray for you. And then you pray, oh God, would you say the truth to her, right? Because uh, if she's going to get angry at somebody, I'd much rather her get angry at you than me. That's a halfway joke, okay? Uh, the, the point is this, when we can get our eyes off of our circumstances, the, the eye of faith, the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our mind, and we can meditate on the truth of God's character, Think about the verse, Isaiah 26.3. Yeah, I love that verse, okay? You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Why? But because God is perfect peace. And the more I look at him mentally with faith, and I remember he's on his throne. He laughs at his enemies. He's confident. He's not worried. He set this plan in motion. He's going to take care of me. He works all things together for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to purpose. It's like his peace comes into me, and it guards my heart and my mind. And that's what David's doing in this psalm. Right? He's hiding in God. He's hoping in God. Okay? Um, listen, it doesn't lead him to overconfidence and to sinfully take matters into his own hands. Rather, it leads him to rest, to humility, to submission, to patience. Now, how might this play out in ministry? Let me just give you a few examples. I had a situation a couple of years ago um, with another friend in ministry in a different state, and there was some conflict, and he would kind of, sometimes we were processing some of this via email, and he would send some emails, and they, they weren't exactly the most nice, loving, kind, respectful, or even accurate and honest emails. And I would first receive them, and I don't know if you ever do this, and I start hammering out a pretty angry, forceful, in your face, let me correct you, let me remind you of the facts, you know. 
And then I was like, wait a second, what am I doing? This is probably not the best way to handle this. And so, you know, you ever written one of these emails and then you delete it, or at least you save it? You're like, I'm not going to send that one yet. I need to pray about this one first. I need to think about it. And then as I go and I pray, I'm like, God, I don't think this is, you know, man's anger, James says, man's anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. Right? There is such thing as righteous anger. I'm just not sure if I've ever really had it. Most of my anger seems pretty sinful and man-centered. And so the next day, I'm like, I'm deleting that email. I'm not going to send that. I'm going to call the guy. I'm going to try to talk to him relationally. I'm going to try to appeal to his heart from my heart. But what did it take? It took me meditating on truth like this. God has a good purpose. This guy can't screw it up, even with his sinfulness. And so I got to be patient. Don't take matters into my own hand. Don't get angry. I had the same thing with a uh, college student that I was discipling recently. Okay, 21-year-old guy. And he was going through some hard stuff, and I'm meeting with him. And in a sense, he's venting. I don't know if you've ever been meeting with a 21-year-old student, and they're venting. And listen, I believe there's a place for venting. We've talked about it in here. In some sense, David vents in his prayers. This guy's venting to me. And so part of what he was doing in the venting, he was just saying stuff that was stupid. It was outrageous. It was arrogant. It was untrue. And everything in me, in my flesh, wanted to rise up and say, you're talking like a moron right now. Let me know when you're ready to have a big boy conversation. Let me know when you're ready to talk about truth and quit complaining and blaming everybody else with your problems. Okay? Now, by God's grace, I was having a spirit-filled moment. I didn't say any of that. I just sat there. I listened. I nodded. I said, I know you're going through a hard situation right now. I literally probably had to wait about 30 seconds, about 30 seconds of silence. And then he said, you know what? I'm exaggerating. This is not that bad. I'm making it worse than it is. What do you think I should do? Because just the 30 seconds of patience, right? Just 30 seconds of, Olin, shut your mouth. Trust that God loves this disciple more than you do. Trust that God has a good plan for this student more than you do. And you don't have to force the issue with strong, forceful words. Now listen, is there ever a place in human interaction for strong, forceful words? Yes. Okay, But some people, myself included, with certain kinds of personalities, tend to way overuse those kinds of words. And it, it, it's a type of sin, right? It's not physical violence. I wasn't literally going to chop somebody's head off like David thought about doing to Saul, but I have verbally chopped some people's head off. I don't know about y'all. And it's amazing when you say, I don't have to force this issue. Yes, I'm going to do my part. Yes, I am going to say truth, but I can really speak the truth in love. I don't have to try to ram it down this person's throat. Why? Because my hope and my confidence is not in how forceful or how strong or how clear I speak. All of my hope and confidence is God loves this kid more than I do, and he's going to move him forward in the right time and way. And I'm just a pawn, and I want to be the most faithful pawn in the universe. <laughs> But I'm not the king, and I'm not doing all the significant work. God is. God's the one that does the real work, okay? When we hide in God, it's better rather than hiding in our own efforts and our own plans, okay? When we hope in God, what are we really doing? We're saying, I hope in your character, God, rather than in my own self-confidence. And it ultimately leads us to this place of steadfastness, rest, faithfulness. So the last point is this, just heart is steadfast, right? So 
He hides in God. He hopes in God. And what's the result? Your heart, your inner man, your inner being becomes steadfast in God. So look at verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake my soul. Excuse me, awake my glory. Awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. And just a couple of thoughts here, guys. This pattern shows up in the Psalms maybe more than any other pattern. And what do I mean? I mean, where David or the psalmist starts out in a place of fear, worry, concern, desperation, anger, something negative. But by the end, he's singing songs of praise. I mean, you almost get this picture of him like dancing around in the cave with just joy and happiness. And guys, this ought to be a normal pattern in our personal prayer life as well. That if, Let's just say you tend to spend time with God first thing in the morning, right? Wake up, go to the bathroom, throw some water on your face, get a cup of coffee, sit down with your Bible and, and your prayer journal, and you start to think, and maybe that day you feel overwhelmed. I've got too much to do today. I'm behind. No way I can get it all done today. Maybe you, you're in an argument with your spouse or one of your children, and it didn't end well last night. You're like, dadgummit, you know, i got to go back and try to fix that today, and I don't want to do it. I'm frustrated. I still feel like I was falsely accused. Whatever it is, you start pouring that stuff out to God. Help me, God. I feel overwhelmed today. Help me, God. I'm confused. Help me. I have this project that I've been assigned. I don't know how to finish it. I need wisdom. I have too much. I can't do everything on my calendar, God. Help me know what things to say yes to. Whatever it is. And by the end, and listen, it's not going to happen every day. And it doesn't happen every time in the Psalms. But the norm ought to be by the end, you get up sense of joy, sense of happiness, sense of confidence, Sense of steadfastness, why? Because God's steadfastness, God's confidence, in a sense, has passed into you. You're trusting in Him, and you're worshiping, and you're joyful. And what you're saying is, at the end of the day, God, I want you to get glory. I don't want myself to get glory. I'm not after my own name and fame. I'm after your name and your fame, and I know how radically you're committed to that. And so if I just fumble forward in faithfulness, you're going to bless the work of my hands, not for my sake, but for yours. Okay. Let me give you another kind of practical campus outreach example here. We had one of our campuses recently that, uh, for whatever reason, was trying to kick campus outreach off of the campus. And they kind of used COVID. You know, it's like COVID. They were draconian and keeping people off. And it wasn't just campus outreach. It was all other kind of off-campus ministries. And after COVID was over, it was kind of like, we're going to keep all those same policies in place. Now, one of the staff members on that campus was really concerned. He was really worried. I mean, you could even say he was, he was panicked. I mean, maybe you could go as far as to say despair, uh, you know, desperation for sure, maybe even some depression. It's like, man, I've given my life and soul to this, this campus. I want to have a fruitful ministry here. And basically now I'm not even allowed to go on campus, can't have campus meetings. What are we going to do? And there was just this sense of panic ensuing. Now, this guy's been on staff, I don't know, five, six years I got 20 plus years on staff. So at some level, I just had this sense of, hey, been here and done this before. Been on campuses before where one person in the administration, for whatever reason, decides he doesn't like you anymore and he's going to try to make your life miserable. So it helped me stay calm. And part of all I was able to do is say to this staff member, don't panic, don't fear, don't worry. 
We're going to try to move forward, be faithful, not sin, not lie, not be deceptive. We're going to try to be respectful. We're going to try to do everything right. But I'm not worried. Things are going to work out well. Now, at times, the staff member would say, okay, but then he would kind of, but how do you know? How do you know for sure it's going to work? What's going to happen in the fall? And I say, listen, am I for sure that we're going to be back on the campus in the fall? No. Do I really think we'll be back on the campus in the fall? Yes. But do I know that for sure? No. But see, that's the thing. My hope is not in God answering my prayer in a really specific way, although I'm praying for really specific things. My hope is that even if God says no to my really specific prayer request, that whatever he's going to give me will be better. Right? Tim Keller has this great quote where he says, listen, if you knew every single thing that God did and understand it from his vantage point, you would actually be praying for exactly what you're getting right now in your life. Because God is always doing what's best to you, even in the hardship, even in the pain, even in the suffering, even the confusion. Okay. Now, let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 24. Kind of wrap up here. 1 Samuel chapter 24. We'll pick up right where we left off in verse 15. Okay. I can give a lot of different examples here. Okay, I mean, practically, what does this look like? Let me give, let me give one outside of Campus Outreach. I knew an older gentleman at the church I go to. He's an elder there. He's been very successful, successful in business. But as he got older, uh, he got fired from his job, let go early, essentially. And as he thought about it, he really thought that some new people had come into the company much younger than him, and this was a case of age discrimination, and he wasn't ready to retire. And so at first, he went out and hired a lawyer, and he was looking into suing them. And the lawyer said, I think you got a great case, and you'll be able to win. But as he spent more time thinking about it, he realized that this is sinful. I, you know, what they did to me was wrong, but I don't want to respond to their wrong with more wrong. And I think taking a lawsuit is wrong. And so he went in there, and they were offering him a severance package, and he, he told them, he said, listen, I'm going to take the severance package partially because I'm ready to just go be a granddaddy. He said, but I want to let you guys know, I think the way that y'all treated me was wrong. Number two, I hired a lawyer. I was planning to sue you. And at this point, I think the owners of the company's eyes started to get big. And he said, and oh, by the way, my lawyer told me I had a great case. But I decided not to do it. And here's the reason why. And he, it basically turned into this very powerful opportunity for him to share the gospel with them. Now, does that mean that's always how we respond, that we never stand up for ourselves, that we never speak up for ourselves? No. I mean, guys, some of this comes down to spirit-filled wisdom. Some of the decisions we have to make won't always be black and white clear. There won't always be a verse to quote. But this is just all the more reason to every day be immersing our mind in scriptures, praying scriptures, right? Uh, John Mark Comer has this great quote where he says, don't just think about the scriptures, think scripture, memorize and meditate on the scripture so much that it just becomes the thought patterns of your mind so that when you get into hardship, God, guide me, Holy Spirit, through the scriptures to know what's the right way to move this forward without sinfully taking it into my own hands. Okay, now let's kind of wrap up by reading the rest of this chapter. First Samuel chapter 24, look in verse 15. The Lord therefore be judged. This is still David speaking to Saul. The Lord therefore be judged and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, 
for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul, and Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. And just a couple of last thoughts here. Notice this. David is not a naive. Trusting in God, hoping in God, depending on his efforts, not mine, doesn't mean that we're stupid and immature and naive. When Saul kind of cries and repents and says, I'm sorry, I know you're going to be king, David doesn't say, okay, everything's wonderful now. I'll just go back home with you. David is wise enough to say, no, I've been here and seen this show before. And Saul may emotionally be saying nice things to me right now, but he could change tomorrow. Demon might come back and he might throw another spear at my face. Thank you, Saul, for your kind words. I'm staying in the caves. Okay? But... One of the ways that we should pray in the midst of all this, and you see David doing it, one of the ways we should think about it in the heart is, God is the judge of all the earth. And at first that can be terrifying. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But because God is my adopted daddy. I mean, imagine if you had to go to court for something. And it was kind of a little gray, whether you were in the right or you were in the wrong. But you knew the guy sitting behind the bench, he's my dad. He loves me. He likes me. I know he's got my best interest in mind. Imagine what would happen to your confidence going to court. Now, here's the only problem with that illustration. All of us realize God is the judge of the universe, and the issue is not gray. Right? The issue is very clear. I'm a sinner. I'm wicked. I have done tons of bad stuff. There have been many times, maybe I haven't verbally, externally chopped somebody's head off of my words, but I've done it in my own mind and my heart. I've hated people. I've been vicious. I've been untrusting. I've tried to force issues that I shouldn't have tried to force. I've tried to work and depend on my own efforts and not depend on the Lord's. But guys, here's the confidence that we have to come back to. Even though we are God's enemies, just like David Real enemy was Saul, but he didn't treat Saul like an enemy. That's what God does with us, right? God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He put his son in the place of his enemy, crucified him on the cross so that I get all the benefits that his son deserved. You know, Romans 8.32 is such a great and powerful verse. If God loved us so much to freely give us his son... How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So this whole time I've been saying, look to God by the eye of faith. But I want to go to the greatest example and the greatest way to look to God is look to the cross. Look to the empty tomb. Look what God did there. You know, in Galatians 3.1, it's really interesting. When Paul is talking to this little church that he'd helped plant in Asia Minor, and, he, and, and, and they, they're, they're leaving the gospel. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, he says that before your eyes, Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And you're like, oh, wait a second. There's no record that anybody from the church at Galatia had been there at the crucifixion of Christ. But what is Paul saying? He's saying that when you hear good preaching, 
about the word of Christ. When you read the scriptures with faith about what happened to Christ in our place, it's as good as if you had seen it with your own eyes. So guys, just pause and think about that for a second. Imagine if there was some type of miracle where all of us right now could be transported back to the cross. Roughly 2,000 years ago, standing there, looking at Christ, the Son of God, on the tree, suffering, crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Into thy hands I commit my spirit. I mean, seeing him trusting the Father when he's in our place. Think about the confidence that would put in our heart. I mean, we, we know it, but if we literally had seen it with our own physical eyes, and then we're brought back to modern day, and whatever problems you're facing, whatever temptations you have to fear, to despair, it's like, wait a second, the God of the entire universe loves me so much that he put his son on the place of the cross, treated him like an enemy. Why? It wasn't arbitrary. He did all of that so that he could treat me like a son. He's not going to waste the blood of his sons. Jesus on the cross was hiding in his father, not in his own efforts. Do you remember when he said, hey, if I want to, I could cry out and I could have 12 legions of angels come and deliver me. But he didn't do that. He said, I'm going to stick with the father's plan no matter how much it hurts, no matter how much it costs. And so, guys, in the midst of our worst sufferings, in the midst of our worst hardships, if we can pause and look to him by the eyes of the faith, part of what will happen will say, man, the worst suffering I'll ever go through, the worst hardship I'll ever go through, it's tiny, it's minuscule compared to what I should have gone through. And if God got me out of that, certainly he's going to get me out of these smaller and lesser hardships that I'm going through right now. And that ought to give us all the confidence, all the steadfastness we ever need in our hearts. Let me pray for us. God, please hear our prayers. Please do bless the work of our hands. Please do give us the wisdom to know what is faithfully working as unto you and trying to move towards your purposes and what will be sinfully taking things in our own hands. And then, Lord, as we, by your grace, do our best to fumble forward, it's not going to be perfect, would you in your mercy, in your grace, in your kindness, Lord, in your steadfast love, just pour out blessing on the work of our hands, on our life, on our family, on our ministry, not for our name, not for our fame, but ultimately so that your glory would look great through our lives and you'd receive much praise from the way that we live in dependence on you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.